0: This concept of division is being heavily sold to us, in my view, and then, when I actually sit down from a person that I should have nothing in common with, they're on the opposite end of the political spectrum, they're a librarian, a Christian conservative librarian in Iowa, I think we end up having a lot more to talk about and a lot more in common than Fox News or CNN would tell us. And I actually think these, media, these major media networks are one of the biggest threats to our republic right now in terms of the, the current crisis we're, we're facing.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Inner Wealth, the Forbes Ignite podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Kakal, CEO of Forbes Ignite. And every week I'll be sharing with you my conversations with unique, creative, and innovative people across all different industries. These are people who are intellectually curious explorers who are also redefining what it means to be successful today. From personal to professional, we cover it all to understand what drives our guests to blaze their own trails and create nimble solutions within the industries that touch each of our lives. Our guest today is Jamie Mustard, a strategic multimedia consultant and so much more. He's the author of The Iconist and all-around great human being. He's an expert at what it takes to stand out in a world that's oversaturated with information and content and he's using his powers for good. What I admire most about Jamie is his hyper-awareness through an unconventional life journey. His unique experiences are what have given him an enriched perspective to help people who feel invisible be seen. We talk about everything from human connection, the beauty of overcoming massive challenges, and finding a purpose through creativity. I know you're gonna love what he has to say. Here's our chat. Hey Jamie, how's it going? Thanks so much for being here.
0: Thank you for having me. It's going really good. We have a sunny, a rare sunny November day here in Portland, Oregon.
1: For the last couple of times that I've spoken with you, it was always raining, like torrential downpour. So
0: it's <laughs> I'm really glad to hear <laughs> Yeah, no, it's beautiful out. And it's a Friday afternoon. I have a weekend. Yeah, so... Uh... Yeah, thank you again for uh, inviting me to have this conversation. I'm really looking forward to it.
1: I've been looking forward to this conversation for so long because the past conversations we have have always been incredibly insightful and I always learn so much more about you. And I just felt like it was long overdue to actually have you on a podcast here. So. I'm super excited. I'm flattered and honored. I would want to start this off by really thanking you for not just being a pure inspiration for myself, but for really contributing to some of the work that we've been doing in the past couple of weeks, where you specifically contributed on the social justice initiative that we were doing. And you contributed so much and you really challenged the way that we all thought. And it really has a lot of impact on the potential solutions that we have. So I wanted to thank you for that.
0: You're very welcome. And again, it's uh, amazing to be able to contribute to something like that.
1: Before we jump into the nitty gritty of what I'd love to talk about today, I wanted to start it off by just getting your thoughts and just talking about your experience based in the, the session that we had. And I'd, I'd love to learn your thoughts about that.
0: I thought that the session was dangerous. And what I, what I mean by that is I couldn't believe that you put such different people in a room.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That you put people in a room, at least for my session, that if we'd met outside of that room, we probably wouldn't talk to each other. And so that you know, one of the things that you know, that we talked about in the pre-call, and that was on this kind of pre-document of the way you wanted to go about it, that I read what uh, the first thing on there is you want it to be a shock to the system,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? So I I going into that call with people that have very diametrically opposed views, right? You had Doc Springer, who works with uh, veterans. She's the number one civilian doc for the military, psychologist, Harvard grad. And then you had a community organizer and a a member of uh, a chapter of Black Lives Matter in New York, right? Mm -hmm. So when you think about that, you have one group of people over here, and i 'm not siding with either of them that that 's very suspicious of the police and probably thinks the police force needs to be completely mm-hmm. reinvented and also would probably look at the look at doc springer 's patients that way, maybe a little bit like you know I look you know some people one person 's hero is another person 's uh, occupier
1: mm-hmm.
0: right so to put two people with such views in a room. And to observe that conversation and engage in that conversation, I think it's a dangerous thing to do because people just don't, it's just not, we're just so focused on how divided we are right now. But I think in order to create a shock to the system, those are the conversations that you need to be facilitating.
1: Right. No, and I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that you described it that way because just to give some context to the people that are listening In your session that you participated in, we had this challenge question that we've been pondering for a very long time. And that was specifically around how might we create or how might we facilitate the support systems that families of choice bring, especially to those who are traumatized or victimized by police brutality. And so when we're thinking about it through that context, um, you need to have those conversations that are in the room that are so unlikely to happen, so to speak. And I think that really contributes to a lot of the framing that we have in our lives, that when we talk about identity politics and we talk about advancement and really just this general framing, I know you have a lot to say about that. And I know like given your background and given your journey, let's start there. Let's start about, let's start talking about your journey and what led you to your beliefs and your value systems right now.
0: Well, I mean, I'm a guy that I think has had a pretty unconventional life in terms of where I started to where I am now, I grew up. I had uh, my both my parents were not very interested. I didn't know my father growing up, and uh, I wasn't in school. I didn't go to school. I didn't have basic parental supervision. I grew up in slums and tenements in uh, inner city Los Angeles. I was semi-literate into my late teens, and I grew up in a place where it, you know that kind of police oppression was so ubiquitous, I didn't even, wouldn't even think about it as brutality. I would just think about it as the way it was, right? But given an opportunity in my late teens, I was able to go from doing remedial education to deal with my literacy issues, uh, to graduating from the London School of Economics, and that took about five years, which was a, this amazing kind of pivot point in my life, because I thought I was stupid, and then in a very short period of time, where I was given, a, where I was able to study without any sort of the poverty issues and all the neighborhood issues and the trigger issues, but I was able just to go to a place and focus, I, I was ended up being capable of far more than I would have even imagined that I of aspiring to, right? So, and then now I have a career where I I've written this book on the primal laws of why we pay attention to one thing and discard another thing, the iconist. And I, I counsel and work with some of the top artists, brands, scientists in the world on how to stand out. So that's a, that's a pretty big arc in terms of, thing, of uh, types of people that you would meet and places you would go from one place to another.
1: That's incredible. That is such an incredible story. And I know from what you were telling me earlier that it is so easy to think about how different we are, especially when you put different people in a room that you think are very unlikely to be in the same room, given their unique life experiences and unique perspectives. But I know this is something that you've coined, I believe, that we should be more focused and amplify. How similar we are versus our differences?
0: Yeah, and I think that was informed by my youth. You know, I grew up in neighborhoods that were largely Hispanic, um, Armenian, and we and neighboring uh, a place in Los Angeles called Koreatown. So it was this incredible melting pot of uh, Mexican people and Guatemalan people, Filipino people. I mean, just this incredible melting pot of Los Angeles. So I was used to being put having all these cult, different cultures pushed in on me. I mean, you go to these parts of Los Angeles where I grew up and there's signs in five different languages, right? So I feel that we're living in a time where division is being sold to us by the major cable news networks. I think that we're far less divided than we think we are. We don't talk to each other, but I actually think if we sat down and talked to each other, we would find that we have a lot more in common. But we we have these echo chambers online and then these cable news networks that sell products And they said the the way that they so they need eyeballs. The way you grab eyeballs is through conflict, through that's the kind of thing that makes people want to pay attention. And just to kind of go back to the framing point, uh, what I would say is this, you know, my grandmother grew up in the segregated South and uh, she went to a black college, She went to a black medical school uh, where she learned medical technology, where she met my grandfather. Uh, And then when he finished medical school, they moved to New York. She was the person that encouraged me when I was at my most bleak of literacy. And I was, I mean, having all the expression that I have as an artist and a writer in me, and not having the math and language tools to say that, it was almost like I spent my youth entombed in the hyperbaric chamber of my own mind. I know better than anyone in this world what it's like to feel invisible. Being a brown boy on the streets of, on concrete streets of Los Angeles in those years, I, you would have driven by me and I would have faded into the brick. But, you know, my grandmother li- who lived through the civil rights movement, she lived her childhood and her early part of her adulthood under Jim Crow, right? The way she framed that for me was that, the society progresses forward and kind of like that moral that martin luther King quote moral justice takes time but it bends towards the good i'm sure i'm horribly butchering it right now but that was kind of the way she framed things for me in the context of beauty art a society that became more just over time i said well god it must have been horrible to be a second class citizen in an all-black town of henning tennessee when you were a kid And she said, what are you talking about? It was amazing. I said, how is that amazing? You're not, you're a second-class citizen. And and her, the way she phrased that to me was, no, that we were a community and we supported each other. And the way you feel about yourself comes from within you. You determine that. You never let anyone determine outside of you how you feel about yourself. And so she framed that for me at at a crisis point in my life. And that gave me hope to kind of put one step in front of the other. And it was very arduous and yet I say excruciating to like hug the cactus and really look at the darkness of all the things that were on top of me that didn't look, make it look like I was going to have a very good life. So I'm very concerned about the time we live in now with these all of these identity politics and this guy is against that guy and all of this attention on the surface notion of color. I'm saying that as a mixed person. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but I, I don't see the world that way. I mean, I, you know, the, to me, the science is in, okay. Below, you know, and we said that, I said this to you before, besides the pigmentation in our skin, the broadness of our noses, the coarseness of our hair, we're identical. Um, and, uh, I, you know, if you take, if you bake, two chocolate cakes and you put vanilla frosting on one and chocolate frosting on another, what kind of cake do you have, right? So I am more focused on you know, how we are the same.
1: Right, amazing, because you said something that I haven't quite heard framed that way before, which is division is being sold to us. I never even thought about it that way, but it's absolutely true. It's a narrative that people like to hang their hat on in order to, to feel like they belong to one side or another. It's, some, it's human nature. I feel like it's all too human to do that, but it's also, you have to rise above that to understand what's happening.
0: You do, and, in one of the, and, I, and I think it's a result of one of the concepts that I talk about in my book. I have these primal laws of why we stand out, right? But the first third of my book focuses on a concept that I call dilution which is that with the rise of all this content, we actually feel smaller. It's harder to get attention. It's harder to get getting attention is the defining social and business challenge of our time. Bill Taylor, the founder of Fast Company, when he reviewed my book, he called, he said, scarcity of attention is the defining business challenge of our time. I would say social challenge and business challenge of our time. We're so small in relation to the digital cascade that comes at people and we can feel it. Right. So what that does is we, we experience, we're experiencing this very strange form of tricky isolation because we're having, we're in a global pandemic. You and I are communicating over a video screen. So I'm having more connection than ever over video screens and the, and the telephone and text message. But this kind of connection is, it's better than nothing, but it's not human connection. And it still is isolation. And in certain ways it's worse because it makes us think, we're having human connection when we're not. And so we're experiencing this incredible amount of isolation even before COVID-19 because of all of these digital means of communicating. And that's having mental effects on us, which I could outline if you wanted me to. But one of the things that I think that that's doing is I think that the isolation created by all of these digital means in which we're engaging the world is making us feel A kind of thirst or starvation for belonging. And that is one of the things contributing to this tribalism is feeling so invisible. So let me just go out and find something that I can, that's a construct or a group that I can hang my hat on so I can feel connected to something. I do think that it's creating a starvation connecting and it is feeding, there's other factors, but it, it is one of the factors feeding the tribalism that we're all experiencing right now.
1: Exactly. I couldn't have said that better myself. It's really what it all boils down to When we think about this division and when we think about all of these human constructs of like one versus the other, it's really all about boiling it down to belonging. People want to feel connected. That is also human nature. They want to feel connected and that they belong to something and feel that belonging unless you, you have that validation from somebody
0: else. Yeah, yeah, and let's get at the 50-foot level of it. If you look at like teen rises in suicide and depression, pre-teen rises in suicide and depression, if you map that scale along with the rise of social media, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, they would mirror each other, right? right? So what, what, what is it, what's the connection? The connection is when I'm talking to you like this, I'm, I'm not talking to somebody else in person. Or I'm not talking to you in person. So it's it's other things like unrealistic views of beauty and posting these perfect lives. When maybe, there's other things too, but I think the isolation is um is a massive uh part of it. And it's really interesting. I there's a little a thing I talked about in my book where there's research that's been done. This is a very extreme example, but there's research that's been done in supermax prisons where people are they have it's, it's this extreme form of isolation where they're deprived of Light and sound and smell and, and the psychological manifestations that come from that are things like rage, paranoia, aggression, anxiety, right? And here we have the isolation created by the digital world because whenever you're talking to someone through a digital means, you're not engaging with them in a human way. Um, And then we have the isolation created by a global pandemic. And then, so it's not surprising to me that we're seeing that rage tip over into the election, into the streets, into, I think it's a lesser, far lesser form, but I do think we're all experiencing the effects of what isolation do to a human being on some lesser level.
1: It's critical to really understand that because I, to your point, when you have these interventions like social media, that really only exacerbates the divide and it really exacerbates the, the feelings that we're having. And far too often, and this is actually something that Doc Springer mentioned, was that we, we're all prone to impression management. And I, I had never heard the term before, but she said that is a phenomena that's really happening where people are trying to curate their lives perfectly on social media and when you think about the corporate leaders, they're trying to save face when it comes to leading their teams and they can't really be their true authentic selves. But if there's anyone that knows anything about authenticity, it's you. So I know that you (laughs) (laughs) That's an
0: incredibly kind thing to say. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You were talking about, you know, the science is in, the science is in about sameness and identity and being your authentic self.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that we all, I'm somebody that experienced a tremendous amount of injustice at a very young age. I mean, thrown away, like discarded, okay? And I, if I had, I didn't focus on that. I focused on beauty, art, humanity, inspiration, and these were the, curiosity, these were the things that kind of led me out of the abyss. And I honestly believed that if I had been focusing on whiteness and blackness and feminism or men 's rights or all, you know divisional things, I think that would have left me i mean this is not a popular thing to say, but I, I think it would have left me in a paralyzed state and i 'm very worried you know, not, not worried concerned about and I'm, uh, what it 's doing to the current generations, younger generations and our children to have this be the backdrop for which they see the world
1: right. Right. Yeah. No, that's, that's incredibly challenging. And when we're thinking about this, the, it's making me feel old just talking about, oh, the new <laughs> generation.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah you know, um, yeah. I, I mean, I, in, our, in one of our conversations, I told you the story about my neighbor yes. who's an African guy He grew up in exile. His dad was a freedom fighter for Mandela. Now he's a PhD. Uh, his wife is a Harvard-trained environmental lawyer. He's African. She's white. They're both interesting people because he grew up in Tanzania in exile, and she grew up in the sticks of off-grid before she went to Harvard in Oregon. And they have a little girl, mixed girl. Her name is uh, Tan Diwe. And I bumped into him uh, on – you know, I would be over there all the time before uh, we were social distancing. And uh, he seemed a little stressed. I said, hey, what's going on? He's oh, just – I'm a little, you know, Tandiwe. I said, oh, what's up with her? She's six. She's very smart. She's got two genius parents, right? And she said that he kept, she was grilling him. She can read. She could read at a young age. And she was grilling him about all the Black Lives Matter signs and asking him, um, why would our lives, why would your life not matter, daddy? Why would my life not matter, daddy? That doesn't make any sense, right? And he didn't really know how to answer the question. So even though these things are very good, um, in terms of someone has to say something and we need to stand up for these things i kn- i get concerned about them continuing on too long and becoming the lens in which we view the world
1: that's a fair point it's perpetuating a particular type of lens rather than seeing what can how can we amplify the ways that we are more similar than we are different
0: yeah i mean for me at a very young age i was Taking the bus from the east part of town where I lived to Hollywood and I won't say how young because it would make people feel bad. But uh, and what I would do because I wasn't in school and I didn't have any parental supervision is I would do some I had some I could pass out flyers to make some money and then I would go to a movie theater all day. Okay. And I would watch this, watch movies. I mean, I probably saw, I don't want to date myself, but you know, (laughs) you know, but, but the return of the Jedi 80,000 times or whatever it was. And um, I think that the movies really framed for me and books later on in life, uh, the way that I looked at the world and I looked at the world as the fulfillment that comes from overcoming deep, uh, massive challenges and the beauty of overcoming massive challenges. And I, and I think that, that through movies and then books, that's been a major part of why I've taken on massive challenges and overcome massive challenges. And I, and, and um, yeah, so I I think that my starting out point was so rough that I understand what it means to be treated roughly Mm -hmm. in on so many different layers. Right. But I don't think that that the focus on that is ever going to result in someone rising out of that. I think it's going to result in more of that. So I don't maybe I don't know if this is the kind of this is a heavy conversation to have on, uh, you know, uh, this show. But um, and I'm not meaning it to be heavy. I'm I'm actually meaning it to be the opposite.
1: No, but definitely, I think that all everything that you're saying is completely valid. And you you said you grew up really, really rough and through really rough phases. But despite all of that, you found creativity as a way of finding a purpose. And by finding a purpose, you're able to really go on the life trajectory where that led you to where you are today. And yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. So I'll say it out loud, right? So what that I think you you hit that you hit the nail on the head. What you're talking about is meaning, okay? Mm-hmm. And meaning is what has been the primary driver of my life, even sometimes to my own, you know, dismay. Okay. Uh, but I really do believe that the way that you can improve the world is through finding inspirational meaning for the individual and for the collective and i don 't think you 're going to find that meaning in seeing everything through the lens of cattle slavery or interse- intersectional feminism i just don 't think you 're going to find the thing that 's going to be curative that 's going to improve the society. I think Dr. King had it right when look, when, when looking at the world as a continuum, that does slide back a few steps. We had this great 1776; we became free nation. Uh, but you know, not too long later, you know, a hundred years later, um, we had uh, the, a, a, a far greater threat to our republic than right now. We had a civil war, um, uh, and I think that so we do slide back right? And just because we slide back, it doesn't mean that we're not moving forward. Because ultimately, it comes down to moral justice does bend towards the good. And we need to be focusing on what we have in common, what we've accomplished, how we've come together, that the then when you focus, you get more of what you focus on, right? So if you focus on injustice, and just all the slings and arrows, and I think, because of what I've been through, I can speak to it. If, if I focus on everything that had horrible that had been done to me and I only in the last few years of my life was I even willing to admit to myself, Nicole, that I'd been victimized. I wasn't even willing to accept it. I accept it now. But I also know that if I'd focused on that victimization and not focused on moving forward, I wouldn't have moved forward.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. It's really, it's really all about the mind frame. It's all about the frame that you put yourself in. And I think you had really great people to surround yourself with, like your grandmother, for example,
0: how- She was one, She was one, but the rest I choose, chose. I mean, she chose me, but, but then uh, there, the rest, uh, there were guardian angels along the way. I mean, Nia, the very brilliant young woman that was on that in our cohort, what did she say? She said, oh, she said um, that pulling yourself up by your bootstraps is a myth. And she's right, it is a myth. I did not pull myself up on my bootstraps. I had pe- I chose people and people chose me along the way and I took the opportunities. But without guardian angels and people coming in and saying, I'm gonna give this guy a chance, I never would have ever tried. And, you know, that being said, I, I, I'd like to share a kind of unique thing that happened to me that I don't really know if I've kind of talked about. And it was kind of the, one of the more epiphanous things that ever happened in my life. When I was 16, my grandmother, convinced me to come out to New York to confront my literacy, said the rent is being in school, everything else is taken care of. And I couldn't, I was so down a hole, I didn't see there was any way of climbing up. It wasn't until I got totally desperate at the age of 19 that I called and I said, is the offer still on the table, right? At that point in my life, I was on a mission to handle my remedial education, get through higher education, get around people that had opportunity and in my mind, that was going to solve everything. Okay. And I think I overshot, you know, I went, I ended up, you know, getting into the London School of Economics. And here I was at one of the greatest educational institutions in the world with some of the wealthiest people in the world and some of the children of the most influential and powerful people in the world. And I really had it in my mind that these were, that I had overcome it. These were going to be my people. Um, these were the people that didn't have all my problems, the problems that I had growing up, and that I would be able to exhale. And I had a really rude awakening because these people had a whole array of problems that weren't like the physical problems that I was faced with. It was maybe they were at that school because their parents made them go there and they wanted to be an artist, right? But there was a whole array of kind of psychological issues that that my friends were dealing with even though they quote came from privilege. Okay. And I know I understand suffering better than most people. And I looked at that suffering. And I, I I told myself, this is real suffering. This is not fake suffering. Whatever those issues they were grappling with, were weighing on them in ways that were very powerful, you know, um, in ways that some of my issues were weighing on me. And I didn't feel like I wanted to judge their trauma even though it was more mental. A lot of my trauma, you know, most of what I had to overcome was psychological. Poverty is a mindset. The biggest thing that I've ever, the, my biggest accomplishment in life is overcoming poverty mindset, right? Like feeling that I could have massive good, you know, I could accomplish things and I could have massive prosperity for myself. I mean, that, you know, when you when you get thrown away, that is like a Houdini trick okay and um it's the biggest trick of my life it's like Houdini getting out of the jacket upside down in the thing that's what it was so i i, I think so that what, it, what what that did is it, that's informed my life i i don't i don't qualify people suffering based on color based on them not having been through what i've been through mm-hmm. based on not maybe not having like the physical suffering that i have suffering is suffering and it's all valid and we all—it happens to all of us—and um, I think that we should be lifting each other up, and not saying, "Well, you know, I came from this background, so my suffering is worse than yours, and you did this to me, and I did that to you." And I think that that whole game is a a destructive, n- unwinnable game. This is the way that I would sum it up. I mean, you said something really profound, okay? And it almost—it almost—it almost got me choked up when I heard it, right? Because, um, and I'm listen, when you've experienced what I have, and and again, I was not really thinking this would be an interview like this, because typically my interviews are all about how to stand out and achieve things and make things incredible things. I don't really go to these places, okay? But the, the fact of the matter is, is that the things that happen to me happen to me, okay? And when I look back on them and how many bullets I dodged, and how many medical scares and, you know, just so many things that could, that should have knocked me off the field. Right. And then here I am and I'm scarred. Right. I'm not, I mean, I'm beat up by it. Right. Um, you ask yourself, you tell yourself a couple of things, God, it's amazing what human beings can do to each other. It's amazing the darkness of what human beings can do to each other. But you also ask yourself, why would you survive something like that. You have to, you try to make sense or meaning of why you would survive something like that. And the only answer that I've ever been able to come up with, Nicole, is that I survived that so that I would have a deeper empathy and more compassion than anyone, so I could then turn around with my skills and use that empathy and compassion to help others. It, that's the only sense I can make up. It I can see people's pain deeper, maybe, or I can experience it. So I'm. I. I it, it's one of the reasons why I'm so good at making things. Uh, I've developed the primal laws of standing out. Probably, probably. I mean, it's a social science. I went to a social science school, but, um, you know, I. I mean. It's, there's a great irony in the fact that I spent my childhood invisible and now I, I help the smartest people in the world be visible. I mean that's a very uh, strange thing. That takes a tremendous amount of immersion, a tremendous amount of empathy, and a tremendous amount of compassion, which translates also into my social change work that I work that I do.
1: Right. That is incredible. And that's going to, that actually, you probably saw this coming that this leads me to my next question.
0: Okay. No, I didn't. (laughs) Yeah.
1: What is your definition of inner wealth? Because I feel like what you just said was such a beautiful description of what that might be.
0: Okay. My definition of inner wealth is this, listen, we, we, we talk, we have this term in in Western culture, uh, uh, we call it, what's your net worth? Which I think is very ironic, right? We were talking about this, right? Your net worth is not how much money you have and how many things you own and how positive you are in the the bank or in terms of assets. That, That would be your net assets, okay? So your net worth is your inner wealth, okay? And your net worth has nothing to do with your assets. I've been to um, poor developing countries all around the world and met people with uh, some of the highest net worths I've ever seen that had nothing, okay? Maybe that, that uh, lived that were from slums and they had incredible, what I would call net worth or what, I, or what I would call inner wealth. So let me define inner wealth. Inner wealth is meaning and human connection. That is the only thing that truly, you, you're going to die. And all those billions or trillions or millions or hundred thousands or benjamin's or washington's or whatever it is for you uh that's not going with you so the things that when we're old and we're on our deathbed we 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 don't think god i could have made that extra million right what we're contemplating is our inner wealth you know did i handle my relationships correctly did i live a life based on my inner drivers based on my meaning Mm -hmm. um so to me when I see somebody that has incredible human connections and they're living a life of meaning and their work reflects their meaning and their, their wife reflects their meaning and their children reflect their meaning and they're living a, a, a life curated with meaning and true human connection. I go, that's when I go, that's the wealthiest person I know.
1: That is incredible. I love your definition. I'm definitely going to borrow that by the way.
0: <laughs> I, I, no one said that before.
1: No, no one has said okay. it I like have you like you okay. okay. So okay. I'm definitely going to quote you on that. But All right. Jamie, it has been such an honor speaking with you, and thank you so much for the amazing conversation. And we're definitely going to have to do this again soon.
0: Thank you for having me. I thought you were going to make me cry. This is, <laughs> I, I uh, no. Thank you for having me to call. This has been amazing. And again, uh, thank you for yeah, just facilitating and being willing to have you know such a kind of uh, different conversation.
1: Of course, of course. I'm so happy that you're here and we're definitely going to have to do this again. I would love it. That's it for this week's episode of Inner Wealth. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and that you'll join us next week as we continue to explore all the ways success is being redefined in our ever-changing world. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Instagram at Forbes Ignite for more thought-provoking content and opportunities to engage with us. I'm your host, Nicole Kakal, thanks for joining us.